This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday show, and if anything can go wrong, it's gone wrong today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. That's our main number, 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, The safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I said things are going wrong. We had a plan to have Pastor Hector Velarde from Calvary Chapel of North San Antonio in the studio. And he wasn't able to make it. He actually, we had a mix-up in communication. So he went down to the KSLR studio, not realizing that we had a studio here in the office at the church. So we're going to reschedule Hector for next Tuesday. And we'll get him here this time. I promise you will be blessed. Uh, I haven't known Hector for very long, but what a really, really neat guy. Loves the Lord. I just love what God is doing over at that church. So we'll get some more details on that next week. Well, with that said, let's just get right to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one is from our email inbox. This one is from Dale. He says, Christians are frequently challenged by pride, self-will, and idolatry and other sins. How does that reconcile with 1 John 3, verse 6, 8, and 9? I'm going to read the passages, Dale, and then I'll get to your question. John writes, uh, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. Dale, this is actually a really profound question. It's really, really deep, and it's an important one for us to understand. In our flesh, I'm talking about Christians, in our flesh is no good thing. You remember that even the Apostle Paul referred to himself as, Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, when my flesh is in control, 
then I'm capable of committing any sin that I've ever committed. I've been saved for 30 years, but when I let my, my flesh be in control, I find out that my flesh is just as stinky, just as ugly as it was before I ever met Jesus in the first place. So you are right in your statement that we're frequently challenged by pride. That's flesh. That is the sin sort of behind all other sins. Self-will is simply um, rebelling against the will of God. That is a sin. Idolatry, um, not in the uh, in our time like it was uh, in the time the Bible was written, but idolatry is anything that you put ahead of Jesus, anything that has a priority in your heart over Jesus. And you are right, lots of other sins. Now, to understand John's passage, Dale, we have to understand that it is written in Greek in the continuous present tense. So the idea that keeps on sinning or will continue to sin, that describes a lifestyle characterized by sin, not an occasional slip. You know, if I get a little bit prideful or if I decide I want to do what I want instead of what God wants, that isn't characteristic of the lifestyle. That's just a rebellion, my flesh against God, and we're all guilty of that sometime. So the idea here, and it's a very simple one, is we got to be with Jesus. Um, we have to be honest enough about who we are. That's why Paul's um, statement in Romans chapter 7 is so instructive for us. Um, wretched man that I am, he was honest about who he was. That means Paul wrestled with the same things that you and I wrestle with. For Paul, in in one instance, we know from from Second uh, Corinthians twelve that he had a problem with conceit. He thought more highly of himself at times than he ought to, uh, because of the the great revelations that he'd seen. And I imagine Paul's flesh every time someone would challenge him or 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 test him on something, he he would think, well, well, if you'd seen Jesus like I've seen Jesus. But he would have to keep dying to his flesh. And actively, we need to die to our flesh every single day. And more than that, Dale, we have to deny our flesh, die to it throughout every single day. So whenever the, the enemy is whispering temptations or whispering ugly thoughts, whenever we start to think that we know more than we do, uh, whenever we decide that, well, what I want is more important at this moment than what God wants, when we find ourselves sort of easing into that territory, that's when we've got to immediately crucify the flesh. So John doesn't mean, uh, later in this epistle, John is going to say that anyone who says he doesn't sin is a liar and the truth isn't in him. So we all sin. But if that characterizes our lifestyle. If people look at us and say, well, well, that's somebody who doesn't know Jesus because that person uh, is, is, is in constant sin or in constant rebellion against God. Um, um, th- those are the kind of sins where, where the person involved will not inherit the kingdom of God. So uh, that's all he's talking about here, Dale. He's just, just talking about we all sin in our flesh. And I want to repeat this, Dale, not for you. I don't know you, but this is for everybody in the audience. Um, unless we understand the depravity of our flesh, unless we understand that that any distance between us and Jesus is going to find us sinning again and again and again and again. 
That should drive us to be with Jesus every single day. Truth is, Dale, when you're with Jesus, you won't do the same things that you do when you're not with him. You won't say the same things. You won't be unkind. The enemy will lie to you and tempt you, and you'll be able to say, it is written. If you're with Jesus, he's the source of your strength. But we have to realize that we have no strength of our own. Let me just mention one more thing, Dale. You mentioned idolatry. Um, And I said idolatry is putting anything in a position of priority over Jesus. Now, we do that with some good things. Our marriages, our children, our careers, things things that are good to, to, to excel in. But when anything or anyone is more important to you than Jesus, when you love anything in this world more than you love Jesus, then you are guilty of the sin of idolatry. Really good question, Dale. Thank you very, very much. You could actually do a whole Bible study on that. Here is our next question. It is from our email inbox from Chip. He says, I know that you have really made the point of coming back to church, as we should, to fellowship with and share with one another. I like to use Hebrews 10.25 to support that point. But how should we approach Paul's encouragement of hospitality in Romans chapter 12, verse 13? Chip, I don't really see any tension between those verses. Hebrews 10.25 says that we're not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. The reality is that in this year plus now of isolation, uh, people just don't do very well. And we need to be in fellowship. We need to be using the gifts that God has given us. And church, the local church, is the place that we do that. Uh, I realize there's still people who are fearful of the... Uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I I realize that we've been bombarded with media over and over and over about the scary um, um, epidemic that's going on and all of the consequences and the the hundreds of thousands of people that have died. Um, The the reality is, and I've said this on this program many times, Chip, we got to learn to live with this virus. Because we cannot, it's been demonstrated, we cannot run away from it. We simply cannot run away from it. It is going to affect every one of us, either personally or tangentially. And we got to learn to live with it. We can't keep hiding. Church is the most important thing that we do. I'm amazed, Chip, that people will um, put on a mask and go to... Um, Costco or HEB but they won't come to church that's a priority problem people say well I got to eat how much more do we need to eat spiritual food how much more do we need need to 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 be involved um, with the power of the spirit in in the in the body of Christ so the truth is we're not doing well in isolation. We need to be in fellowship. Now, Paul says in the passage in Romans 12 that you, uh, it says, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Um, again, there's no tension there. That's just a good answer. But, but that also happens 
in the fellowship of believers. So we, we need to be out and about. What we really need to do is is um, live our lives, live our lives for Jesus. I tell our church here all the time, and I do, uh, Chip, get a little bit of flack from this from time to time, but I tell people, look, God doesn't give us days off. We call him Lord. Every day we do what he did. He served. He, he would come back at the end of the day absolutely spent. He was so tired. Have to go out on the mountain and sleep and be alone with his father to, to renew his strength. Um, well, we're to, I'm going to put it in the Apostle Paul's word, we also are to spend and be spent. And we do that in the body of Christ. So, again, I don't see any tension uh, if the idea that you're trying to communicate is that, well, it's, it's, it's uh, the hospitable thing to do is to stay out of church uh, because we don't want to to expose anybody to this this virus, um, then then I think we're missing the whole point. The most hospitable thing we can do is be at our best with and for Jesus every single day. And hospitality without the power of the Holy Spirit is not going to be very hospitable. Good question, Chip. Thank you very very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. While we await your calls. Peter says, Pastor Ron, if someone says they're saved, but they're living in constant sin, can they really be saved? And what should I say to them about the choices they make? Peter, this is sort of a a, a different version of Dale's question at the top of the program. Uh, Lots of people say they're saved. Yeah, I was raised in church, go to church every Sunday. I've been baptized. I'm a member of this church, all those things. But none of that stuff saves. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Somebody living in constant sin does not love Jesus. If they don't love him, it means they haven't met him. Now, it's not our job to judge people's souls. But you ask, can they really be saved? The answer is is no. People who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter what they say with their lips. What matters is who they are and how they live their lives. I tell our church here at Calvary all the time, when you meet my Jesus, you're changed. When you really meet Jesus, you have an encounter with Almighty God. Then it's just impossible to live in constant sin. The Holy Spirit lives in you by definition if you're a believer, Peter. And if he's not convicting you of sin, and that means he doesn't live in you. Now, relative to what you should say to them about the choices they make, uh, if these are friends or family members, people you care about, you need to be really direct with them. It may cost you some friends. But you need to be really direct with them. What I say to people when they're living in constant sin but tell me they're saved, I ask them point blank, how do you know you're saved? And usually they'll say, well, I was baptized or, well, I was raised in church. And I'll say, well, here's the Bible. Show me where any of that saves you. You can hang around with Christians without being one. happens all the time. And I'm really direct with them because I want them to examine their hearts. And when they continually make sinful choices, then I want them to know. This is the way the Bible's written. Peter, I want him to know that it's unlikely that they are saved. 
It's not me judging their souls. I'm just saying, here's what Galatians chapter 5 says. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. And the kind of sin, the choices you're making are listed in that passage. And that says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's really important. If you love them, then you have to tell them the truth in love. Thank you, Peter. Here is a question from Rodney. Pastor Ron, what exactly does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? And I need to know who we should pray to, the Father or the Son. Rodney, it doesn't matter who you pray to. I'll take the easy question first. It doesn't matter. There's no competition between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're praying to the Father in Jesus' name. I'll explain that in a moment. And we're praying, hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Godhead are involved, actively involved in our prayers. When Jesus said, what does it mean to pray in his name? Or he said, up to now you've asked nothing in my name, but now you can ask in my name. All he means by that, Rodney, is that, that he has made access for us to talk to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me, he said. So he opened the door because of sinful or sinful nature because of our not because of our guilt we are sinners uh, we have no access to a holy god jesus when he gave us his righteousness and he took our sin he opened the door i don't know if you've ever been to a place you needed to get in really really badly and the door was locked and you just couldn't get in and there was nobody in there to 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 open the door or unlock it for you from the inside well, that's what heaven was like. It was it was completely shut off. If you're an unbeliever, the door is locked. When you ask Jesus into your heart, then Jesus has given you the password or the passcode. And you can go right in. We can, according to Hebrews, approach the throne of grace with confidence that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Now, what we've done, because this is what we humans do, is we've taken that statement and we've turned it into sort of a spiritual lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, We'll pray all these things, whether they're in the will of God or not, whether we've sought God, we'll close as Christians. We'll say, in Jesus' name. But but it's not a formula. To pray in Jesus' name means, one, you're praying in his will. Second, your heart is right with God. So you have access to pray. Your prayers will be heard. But believe me, just the name of Jesus means nothing if you're not living it, if you're not walking with Jesus. So that's what it means. It means nothing more than access. And I know that upsets some people because we like the formula. Well, no, if I ask in Jesus' name, I have what I ask for. But remember, we have to pray in the will of God. So it's very important that we pray. Now remember, Jesus came to reveal the Father. The Holy Spirit came to point us to Jesus. So we got to be walking with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the throne of God is open to every single one of us. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. You know, Rodney, I, um, I deal with this so often that for a time, uh, in my public prayers, I, I'd stopped 
saying using the phrase in Jesus' name because I realize how many people are using it sort of as that lucky rabbit's foot. Okay, well, I said in Jesus' name, so that's it. Uh, so I stopped doing it. I had some people say, well, Pastor Ron, I notice you're not praying in Jesus' name. Are your prayers being heard kind of thing? And um, I tell them pretty much the same thing that I'm explaining to you. To pray in Jesus' name means you're praying for him, you're praying to him, you're praying through him. And all because you want his will and his will alone in your life. Thank you, Rodney. Kelly says, how long should I pray for something when God is not answering my prayers? Well, anything that's really important to you, Kelly, um, the persistent widow parable, Jesus told us, he told us why he gave us the parable, um, so that we ought not to quit praying. Keep on praying. But here's the thing, when you're praying for something, and God's not answering your prayers, it's really time to examine your heart. Are you praying it for you? Are you praying it for Him? It's what you're praying for in the will of God. I'll just give you a personal example, Kelly. Most of you have heard our testimony, mine and Paula. She prayed for me for 13 years. And, um, you know, Paula would get pretty bold. God, I'm doing my part, but why aren't you doing your part? Well, for maybe the first 10 years of those 13 years, she wasn't praying in the will of God. That was certainly God's will that I got saved. But Paula was praying that I would get saved so that her life would get better. And when her life got better, then, then she would be able to pray with thanksgiving. But, but God needed to deal with her heart. And he wanted to change her. He wanted her to do two things. And this is the, the real value of prayer. The first is prayer makes us want God's will. Secondly, in praying for me, God was helping her to love me more. God was giving her his heart for me. And in the process of that, Kelly, um, God was able to do something supernatural heart. She was falling in love with me all over again, even though I was still Ron the Jerk. But you see, God did the work. And in the last three years, she was really praying in the will of God for God's glory. No longer praying it just so her life would get better. So don't stop praying ever. Just check your motives for praying. God delights to answer our prayers, Kelly, so... If you're not getting prayers answered, that's the place to begin. Jesus, what is your will in this matter? Whatever it is, we can pray some pretty selfish prayers and make them sound pretty spiritual. But just say, what is your will in this matter, O God? And he'll let you know. James, the Lord's half-brother, he said, do any of you lack wisdom? If so, ask God, and he will give it to us generously or lavishly. And these are the prayers he wants to answer. Okay, Lord, you examine my heart. Is my motive wrong? Am I praying this selfishly? Or am I really praying for your will to be done? Kelly, I was praying for my sons today as I do daily, and 
you know, I got to the, with one of my sons, it deals with some pride issues and some things. And I just said, Lord, this is the, the one prayer a father never wants to pray, but I'm praying it, whatever it takes to break that pride. It's a great guy, great man. But, but Lord, if pride is keeping him from getting closer to you, then whatever it takes. That's a scary prayer for a parent. But it's an honest prayer that really, truly wants the will of God. So, Kelly, don't ever stop praying. Hope that makes sense to you. Last question for this half of the program. It's from Oliver. He said, I'm going to do this one at the, after the break. This is a little bit maybe too involved. Olivia, I can do this one. She says, my family believes Jews will go to heaven even if they don't accept Jesus. Is that true? No, it's not, Olivia. Um, wonderful passage of Scripture that really shows you the heart of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9, the first four verses, where Paul essentially says, Lord, I would give my place in heaven if only my brothers, the Jews, would believe. And he affirms that with what I call a triple-layer oath. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit is in me. My conscience affirms it. I'm not lying. If Jews got to heaven just because they were Jewish, then that would be a dumb thing for Paul to say. Jesus said to Jews that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, Olivia, the reason this is often misunderstood is because Jews are not Israel. Jews trace their ancestry to Jacob, but they're not Israel. They believe. So, just like everybody else, we've got to believe in Jesus. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones are quiet. We'd love to have your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Before we get to a phone call and uh, some of your questions, uh, I just got word during our brief break that the verdict is in. Uh, Derek Chauvin has been found guilty of murder on all three charges. They immediately took him into custody. This is a time for us as believers to be in prayer for our nation, certainly to be in prayer for the George Floyd family, but for all of the families who have been um, affected um, by at least their perception of unequal justice. And as believers, we need to understand. We need to love them and and um, we need to keep peace in our prayers. So it's very, very important. This is a time where Christians can shine like light. I'm certain we're not done with with um, protests and uh, um, I'm sure there will be more deaths. Pray for our policemen. Pray for uh, all of the victims. Um, 
um, understanding that in many cases there are justified shootings, but in this particular case, um, it was a pretty slam dunk. I mean, the jury came in very quickly, and they came in unanimously. Uh, let's pray that that the light of Christ shines now through us. Let everybody else in the world act a fool, but we need to be sure that we're shining uh, the light for Jesus Christ. Let's go to Mike on line one. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I've been listening to you for years, and I've been attending your church for about two years. Hey, oh, and thanks, I know Mike. you. you predestination and I know your position which I appreciate I'm pretty sure it's Romans 9 and I believe Apostle Paul is talking and he's talking about the Lord creating people uh, as he wishes for his purposes and I don't want to use the word damnation but he talks about creating things and he has the the latitude to create them for whatever purpose he wants and as I read these passages and I think you're familiar with them It sure sounds like, and I don't believe in predestination in terms of people don't have a choice. That that sounds ridiculous. But in these passages, it sounds like, is it possible that the Lord would do something like that? And Should I hang up or stay on the line? Uh, Mike, you can hang up and listen. That's that's okay. It'll be an involved answer. So I appreciate it very, very much. God bless you, man. A couple of things. One, you've got to really understand... The, the, the purpose of Romans 9, 10, and 11 being inserted um, right in the middle of, of uh, this, this wonderful treatment of our faith. Um, predestination is a biblical doctrine. To deny that is, is as foolish as... As saying, well, I don't like it, so I, I just don't 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 want to believe it. Um, but the basis of our election is what we really need to understand. We're told two places: Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, and First uh, Peter chapter one, the first couple of verses, that the basis of God's f- choice of us is His foreknowledge. Now, obviously, Mike, God lives outside of time and space, and uh, he knows who's going to choose him and who's not going to choose him. Now, he, he chooses those he knows are going to choose him back. I rebelled against God till I was almost 40 years old. Uh, I, 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 I hated God. I mocked God. I blasphemed God. But God, according to Romans 8.29, never changed his mind about loving me because he knew there would come a day. For me, it was February of 1991. He knew there would be a day when I would join the family. So God set his love upon me. In Romans chapter 9, he says in verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, God, because he knew I was going to be his, chose to have mercy on me. And he did that on the basis of his foreknowledge. So if we go to the context here, Romans 9, verse 13, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What you've got to understand is that we know God is love, so he didn't hate like I hate that guy. Um, He just wasn't able to love him. Esau wouldn't receive his love. We need to remember, and I've done three Bible studies um, in these three chapters, a bunch more than three Bible studies, but, but in these three chapters, where, where we, we used all of the people 
that God chose to have mercy and, and those he chose to harden their hearts and explain why. In, in Esau and Jacob, it's, it's simple. Uh, with Jacob, he knew there was a day when Jacob was going to wrestle with him. That's Genesis chapter 32. And, um, and, and Jacob was going to become Israel, meaning governed by God. So I loved him. Now, Jacob wasn't lovable. He didn't do anything good. He wasn't better than Esau. It's just that God knew that Jacob would surrender to him. Esau, Mike, sold God out for a bowl of stew. He sold his birthright, the birthright that was his. God had already prophesied that, that uh, the older w- will serve the younger and, and uh, because he knew Esau's heart. So it's not that he hated Esau the way we think of hate. It's just that I want to love Esau, but he won't let me. So the result is, though, I hated him. And, and, and so he chose to have mercy on Jacob. He chose to harden Esau's heart because Esau's heart had nothing to do with God. So that's really an important understanding. Now, let me get back to why Romans 9, 10, and 11 are so important. In the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has made uh, the, the most perfect legal case condemning sinful man and pointing to Jesus as the only escape from the sentence of death. And then, almost as if to answer the Jewish mind saying, well, well wait a minute, how, how is God faithful when we've been overrun by enemies, when, when we've continually been away from our homeland, or when we've been continually uh, unable to go to the temple? That's Israel's history. Um, in Romans 9, 10 and 11, Paul is simply saying that here is the best witness to the faithfulness of God. Israel is the case in point. And so that's what he's doing. Now, in this this selection, he's having mercy on Israel. Um, but, but then he says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that the, my name might be proclaimed on all of the earth. And we remember from the Exodus story that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God seven times. That's important because seven is the number of completion. That's, that's, that's all of it. Then it was God that turned him over to his own heart, Mike. And God allowed his heart to get harder and harder. Now, he gave him plenty of chances. Seven times Moses came in and the power of God was obvious. Even Pharaoh's own people were saying, let him go, let him go, let him go. But at some point, Pharaoh's heart was given over, and it got so hard that he ended up killing his army, of course, in the Red Sea. Why did he do it? He did it so that others would hear, and his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So the, the whole idea of predestination has nothing to do with God saying to one person, you know what, I'm going to save you, and then to another person, I'm not going to save you. If you look at the people, again, in these three chapters, the reasons that their hearts were hardened had nothing to do with the desire or the will of God. It's just God knew what was going to happen. 
So that's very important. Uh, when you get down to verse 19 in chapter 9, uh, Mike, Paul asks the question, he says, one of you will say, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? And then he says, who are you, O God, to talk back, or who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed to him uh, who formed it say, why did you make me like this? It's not the right out of the same lump of fight. Some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. That doesn't mean that God says, okay, you're noble, you're common. What he means is that God pours out his blessings on everybody. And only those who respond to him are going to be those who are raised up for noble purposes. Now, Pharaoh, at, at this point, the most powerful man in the world, God says, you're there by my will. And even though you resist me, I'm going to use you to accomplish my plan. That's the best illustration of God's sovereignty that there is. So, Mike, God does not choose some for heaven and some for hell. He doesn't say that that you don't have a choice. Over and over throughout scriptures, Old Testament and New, we're called to make a choice. God knows the choice that we're going to make. And we have to truly be grateful for God's long-suffering He suffered a long time with me, Mike. And that's because he knew I was going to surrender my heart to him. It would have been enough if God said, okay, I'll take you to heaven. But he didn't. He gave me the privilege and the opportunity of becoming Pastor Ron. Now, Pastor Ron's not anybody special. You guys know what I mean. But I, I get to live for him. God smiles all the time. He had mercy on me when there was no reason for him to do it. So that's the whole idea with predestination. It's a biblical doctrine. Don't hate it. It's a wonderful thing. I love the fact that God chose me before the foundation of the world, Mike, because he wouldn't chose me if he waited to find out who I'd become. He chose me from the beginning because he knew that I was going to be his. Thank you, Mike. appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Oliver, the one that I couldn't get to uh, at the end of the last half hour. Uh, Pastor, I'm called to be a pastor and want to know what I can do now to be ready when God's call comes. Well, Oliver, God's call has already come. It's very important for you to understand that distinction. Um, you, You may not have a church to walk into yet. You may not be a Bible scholar yet. But Uh, The call has already come. So now what you do is you stay so close to Jesus that, that, that if he turns left, you're right there with him. If he turns right, you're right there with him. But I say it all the time, just be with Jesus. You hang out with Jesus. You'll be more and more like Jesus every day. The more time you spend with him, the more like him you're going to be. And all of that is part of your preparation. Now, here's two other things that are really important. Oliver, you have to love people. You've got to love them enough to tell them the truth. You can't be frustrated. You can't be impatient with them. God loves them. He's not impatient. He wasn't impatient with you. He, he doesn't want you to misrepresent him by being impatient with others. So you've got to love them. And loving them means you're going to pray for people. Loving people means that you're out there actively now sharing Jesus with people. You've got to be active in sharing your faith. And that's part of the preparation. You really, Oliver, have to have a heart for the lost. 
That's an urgent call. And then you got to really fall in love with God's Word. I'm going to be talking about this very thing on Friday night here as we're going through Ephesians and we've come to chapter 6 and we're going to be talking about the sword of the Spirit. The truth is, Oliver, you've got to love God's Word. You've got to devour it. You know, you can't read devotions. You can't just sort of casually read. You've got to dig in. Be a workman studying your, to show yourself approved, a workman rightly dividing the Word of God. You've got to have a confidence in the Word. You've got to have the power of God moving in and through your life. You can't take other people where you yourself haven't been. So in this calling to be a pastor, um, dig in right now and fall in love with your Bible be curious, ask questions, don't stop till you get the answers. And one day you'll know exactly what your next step is going to be. Let me also say this, Oliver. When I was called to be a pastor, I was six months old in the Lord. I wasn't even sure. I wasn't raised in church, so I wasn't even sure what a pastor did. Now, I'd seen some pastors on TV, so I had an idea. I'd been to church, of course, so I knew they were the ones teaching. But beyond that, I didn't know what it meant to be a pastor. But I knew I was called to be a pastor. And that day is when I started doing whatever I needed to do to be ready. And that was in 1991. Um, I knew in 1993, the end of the year, that God had called me to go to Bible college and he sort of led and directed me to the, to the Bible college he wanted me to go to. And then I knew I had to be ready. I had to be somebody that was dependable. I, I couldn't quit because things got tough. One thing, Oliver, that breaks my heart more than almost anything else with pastors is how quickly they quit when things get hard. you got to be called for the long run. When Paul and I got here, for the first three years, it didn't really look like God was going to do much of anything as a church. And there were so many times that it made more sense just to quit and leave and go go back home and, and just admit that, okay, I was wrong. I wasn't called to be a pastor. But, you know, I knew I didn't have that choice. So you got to be tough. got to be loving, but you got to be tough. And you got to pay attention to your own personal walk with God. Final thought, Oliver, and then we've got a phone call waiting. If, in fact, you are married, this is when you and your wife begin embracing this call to be pastor and pastor's wife together. And God needs to knit your hearts together in the work and in the calling. You need to be a formidable pair because the enemy is going to do anything and everything he can to destroy it. And, and you've got to be that in that place where when the enemy starts lying, you just say, hey, away from me. So prepare your marriage for the calling as well. Thank you, Mike, or Oliver, I'm sorry. God bless you. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hey, I, I had the privilege and the joy of worshiping in, in your church on Sunday. Oh, uh, good. I wasn't here. <laughs> well, you know, isn't someone? I've heard it said that you, you can really know where a church is when the senior pastor is not there. I mean, is, is the Holy Spirit <laughs> still evident? 
does it still function, you know, is it still beautiful, you know, and it was just, it was just wonderful. I'm just, first of all, you know, you don't need a 20-piece band or a 10-piece band. You have three, you know, people with, with contrite hearts that are truly worshiping and beautiful musicians on top of that, but boy, they are just magnificent. And then, um, Thank you, Jeff. And then Pastor Ken, uh, I've, I've listened to many of his teachings online, but I've never heard him, you know, on a Sunday. And he was just so fluid and and uh, just wonderful. I'm learning a great deal, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. So, Thank you, Jeff. When I'm gone, our church gets younger and better looking, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder you were you you mentioned how you know we should never stop working and and uh, don't grow weary and you know you're going to be super tired and and I know that there's an exhilaration that that those of us that serve have after a day of or, or days of just working so hard and becomes I don't know if addictive is the word but it's just you know you know you're doing the right thing. But I, I wonder if you could talk about rest and, you know, how, how for example, how you and Paula handle the, the Sabbath for yourselves. And, and when the people in service, how should they manage themselves to ensure that they're rested enough to go out and continue the work? And um, I'll let you, let you talk off, off. I'll get off the phone here. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Jeff. God bless you. Sorry, sorry, we missed you on Sunday. We had a, we had a great time at the Calvary Chapel, South San Antonio. A uh, couple of things, um, you know. I, I, I want to be real about this. Uh, pastors often talk about how hard what we do is, and you know we're really tired. The truth is, most of the human race works a lot harder than we do. I'm not out digging ditches. I'm not out doing plumbing work. I'm not out laying fences um, uh, or, or doing all the construction we've had on our freeway back here. Uh, I mean, sometimes those guys are working really, really hard, lifting and getting dirty. Um, we, we don't really work that hard in comparison. Now, there's a spiritual and an emotional element to what we do that takes a toll. So uh, that's here. That, that's why Paul said that we're to to work hard in the Lord, and it's a very uh, expressive word in Greek. Uh, we're to work beyond ourselves, is what it means. He said that he's willing to spend and be spent. In other words, everything that he has gets poured out in his offering of of, of what God has called him to do, and the reality is that uh, the older I get in particular, um, the more I have to be aware of this. Now, I'll just talk about me for a minute. Um, um, I'm a high-energy person uh, as it relates to, to work. I, I've got uh, two speeds, on and off. And when, when the, the switch is on, I can go and go and go. I used to work 100, 110-hour-plus weeks uh, in the world, I mean, before before Jesus um, so I can keep going as long as I keep going. My problem is when I sit down or when I stop or when I go, I don't even go out to lunch, Jeff, because I don't want my motor to go off. Um, uh, then I'm done. And and uh, poor Paul, I go home 
uh, sometimes, and I'm just done. And that's just time to to uh, rest, get in bed, and get recharged for the next day. Now, Paula is even higher energy than I am. And, um, you know, we, we're committed to this work together, and we love what we do. So it's not really work, it's a labor of love. And I think it's really important. So... Um, we rest. Thursday is our day off. It's our date day. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't work. Um, you know, we do the radio show as an example. Uh, but we try not to really clutter Thursdays up with stuff. No, we will go out to breakfast with people. Uh, we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll take people out. Sometimes that's a, uh, the best way to counsel people. Um, but we're doing it together. And the idea for date day is for me and Paula is just to be together. And and sometimes we are all of our conversations about the Lord. Sometimes we're just laughing at each other. I laugh at Paula all the time. Um, um, there's a difference. I laugh with her. She laughs at me. But the idea is uh, we're, we're resting. God gives us plenty of time to do that rest. Uh, one advantage we have, Jeff, is that we don't have young kids at home. We have no kids at home. And and so um, I wouldn't, for example, ask Pastor Ken to spend the same amount of time here as I spend because he would be neglecting his wife and his children if he did. And certainly that wouldn't be of the Lord. So uh, it's different, and you're, as your life station changes, things are... are um, you just know how much of yourself to give. And our our desire is not to hold anything back at all. Um, I always joke that preaching a sermon would be the best place for me to die or for Jesus to come for us. Um, but we want to be found doing the work of God. Again, I know my limits, and um, I'm not a very social person in the sense that um, you know, we don't do parties and we don't do um, Saturdays. It's a day for me to just sort of rest my brain. I get in bed early Saturday night and get up really early on Sunday morning. Um, and so I protect it. I know what I need to do to be ready. And and I kind of protect that. Um, again, for Paula, uh, she's very social. So what tires me out energizes her. And uh, we just realize that because we're in this together, um, we know what we have to do. So I hope that answers your question, Jeff. The personal question is the one I have the most difficulty um, articulating here. So uh, I, too, want to say thank you for Pastor Ken. What a great job he did on Sunday. And, um, you know, sometimes I wonder, am I holding the church back? Is it time for me to step back and get out of the way? Uh, but uh, Pastor Ken and I, we're a pretty good team. Um, he's not eager for me to go. I'm not eager to go. So we'll work it out. We'll work it out. Hey, that's the music. We are at the end of our program. You've been listening to the word to stand up for life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at four o'clock on AM 630. The word we'd love to have you call and ask whatever questions. May God bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.